text this morning is, is the whole chapter of Exodus 2. And so I'm going to go ahead and read through here. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of, the, out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Well, we heard last week uh, from Pastor Cody that beautiful passage of the midwives in Exodus 1. Um, the book opens with kind of a very condensed um, Old Testament kind of recap of the whole story of Genesis, just by giving us the names. We're meant to kind of have all these things fire off in our brain of what God has already done to be faithful to Israel and bring them to that point. And then the question is why, <laughs> right? Like, why has God saved them out of this place? And now as they expand and do exactly what he's called them to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply, all of a sudden they're on the wrong side of Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh begins to kind of find ways to edge them out, to push them off to the side, to marginalize them politically and, and even geographically. They settle in the land of Goshen, the place where the shepherds live, which was not a good thing to be in Egypt, right? Um, you didn't rise from the ranks as a shepherd. 
That was something you had to overcome. And as they expand and grow and continue to expand and grow, Pharaoh can't kind of, um, it's not enough just to push them off to the side. He actually needs to wear them down. And so pretty soon the babies end up in the river. Shifra and Pua are the heroic midwives who refuse to go along with Pharaoh's planned genocide. There's this resistance to tyranny. This resistance to a Pharaoh who is so insecure in his place, so insecure in his authority, so insecure in his power, that he has to make sure that he keeps everybody under him in place. That he isolates and marginalizes them so that they can't unite and rise up against him. The midwives engage in this heroic form of resistance against that tyranny. And then we discover it wasn't just the midwives. Because the writer of Exodus gives us this line. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. One commentator said, they dared to marry. When tyranny runs rampant, when life doesn't look very promising, um, it actually takes an act of courage to do something simple like Mary. It takes an act of heroism to do something as simple and common as having children. In times of struggle and uncertainty, it's the little acts of hope that constitute great resistance. I mean, you can imagine if you're in, I don't know, Poland in 1939. If you find yourself in Cambodia while Pol Pot is in power, or Chile, is that Pinochet? <laughs> when Pinochet was doing his thing. It all of a sudden takes an act of great moral courage to do what is totally natural and normal to human life, to marry, to have children. In times where faithfulness becomes more and more difficult, it's the lives of quiet persistence that make the most difference. Because not only do Jochebed and Amram, that's we discover those are their names later on, um, not only do they marry, but again, they have kids, right? And they have three children. Moses, that we know of, Moses is the youngest of those three. You've got Aaron, you've got Miriam, and finally along comes Moses. I wonder, I wonder if what it was like for Jochebed to be pregnant while this pharaoh is reigning. And remember, there's no ultrasounds or 4D, whatever they do now, I don't know, where you can tell your baby's future um, if you just pay them enough money. But here she is growing, wondering, boy or girl? Do I get to hope? Do I get to be joyful? 
Or am I preparing to grieve? Am I just getting ready to mourn? I know we don't have Pharaoh as our ruler, but it does feel sometimes <laughs> like in a world where people think that nothing really matters, in a world where people kind of, there's no ultimate meaning, there's nothing really to this. Why would I go through the ordeal of childbirth? Why would I go through everything that it takes to actually raise children? Why would I put my life on pause? Why not just be a dink, right? Double income, no kids. That's <laughs> you know, husband and wife are working. That's a lot of money. No kids. You don't have anything to sort of pour into. You can just travel and live and love life and do everything you always wanted to do when you were 25, except now you've got like 50 years to do it. That's honestly the culture, expectation, feels like the, the, the sort of spirit of the times that we're in. How dare you have children in a climate crisis? Right? And yet here they are. Here is Yochabed with this baby growing inside her. And at the moment of birth, do you wonder what it was like for her to hear the words, it's a boy? The tragedy? The horror? The disappointment? The thanksgiving? That's somehow all mixed up in there together? And not only is he a boy, he's like a good boy, right? He's a fine child, whatever. I don't, I don't know what that is in Hebrew, but like, <laughs> he's one you want to keep. And so she does what any mother's going to do, right? She keeps him as long as she possibly can until it's almost ready to like, spoil the rest of the family and get everybody in trouble and get everybody killed. And then she does this really fascinating thing. If marrying was an act of faith and if getting pregnant was a bigger act of faith, and then this is even maybe the greatest act of faith at all, of all because Yogabed takes her baby, who we don't even know his Hebrew name, by the way. She takes her baby... And she built, a, a, the text actually says she built an ark. It says basket, but the word is ark, and the only other place this word gets used is in the flood story. She builds an ark, and she does exactly what Noah does with it. She lines it with bitumen and pitch, right? stuff that literally just bubbles out of the ground. It's like oil products, but they would use it to seal off boats. And so she takes this little basket, this little ark, and she seals it off, and she places the baby in it. And then up you go. With a prayer, of course, that God would preserve little Moses the same way he preserved Noah. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you live with that kind of faith alive. I don't, I don't know how you don't wall that off and compartmentalize it and go, nothing matters, and, and Pharaoh rules, and Pharaoh reigns, and Egypt is the real world, and I'm just going to abandon all hope. 
the ark. She places her baby in it and sets him in the water. Remember the way they would have seen this. This is, on one level, this is kind of like taking your baby to the fire station, right? I can't care for him. He's not safe with me. I'm going to give him to somebody who can get him somewhere safe. On on one level, that's the act of faith. But on another level, recognize where she's putting him. She's putting him in the Nile River with the crocodiles and the hippos. And just saying, Lord, if he's going to be yours, then he's going to be yours. And maybe I would have loved to wait 18 years until I sort of sent him off into the world. But in this moment, this is what I have. And so here he is. By God's mercy, may the waters that meant death for others be merely a baptism for this little one. And so often, that's exactly where we find ourselves. I used to think that parents were so dramatic about their kids and how dangerous the world was and all this stuff. But man, (laughs) once they come along, (laughs) you just live with that fear all the time. But Lord, may the waters that meant death for other people be merely a baptism for them. May the waters that overwhelmed some be a sign of your mercy, be a sign of your presence, be a sign of your preservation in their lives. But of course, she also does what any mother would do and sends little Miriam along the way, right, to watch and see. So Miriam is in the reeds, seeing what happens. What I love about this story, what has so moved me about this story, is that this is a a resistance against Pharaoh that is totally and completely unintelligible unless God is real. I got asked at, at camp this week, we did a little Q&A panel, and one of the questions that came in from the junior hires was, how can I know God is real? Right? If you think your 6th and 7th and 8th graders only care about like Minecraft and I don't know, whatever else, um, <laughs> they don't, right? They've got questions sitting on their brain like, how can I know God is real? And it's stories like this that I've actually encountered in my own life that let me know and see that God really is real. Because unless God is real, Jochebed's faith makes no sense. Her life makes no sense unless God intervenes. This story doesn't come down to us through these texts if God's not real. If everything is just sort of this meaningless swirl and if the Nile is really the chaos that the Egyptians and the Israelites believed it was, and if the crocodiles and the hippos ultimately are the lord of the waters, then Moses does not make it through. But there is a resistance against tyranny. It's unintelligible unless God makes it work. It's a resistance based in faith. That's the first kind of resistance against Egypt, against tyranny. It says, Lord, it's in you. 
The second type of resistance that, Egypt, that uh, Exodus 2 gives us is Moses' resistance. After he's a grown man and he's been pulled out of the water, thanks be to God, and the princess has, oh, is she a princess? She's Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, she comes along and takes him and, and, and raises him, and the whole miraculous thing of she's actually going to give him back to his mom to nurse him until he's two or three years old, right? <laughs> this is incredible. Um, but here he is, he's a grown man, and he goes out to see what's going on in slave land. Moses takes action. And see, Moses was Egypt saved. He was drawn up out of the water, and he was reminded of that every time somebody said his name. He was Egypt educated. The court of Egypt was the Harvard, the Oxford of the day. People came from all over the world, not just Egypt, but all other kinds of nations to learn in the court of Egypt. And here is Moses with a front seat. He's got the best education in the world in literature and speech and diplomacy and leadership. And, by the way, he also would have gotten an education in a classism that uh, would have made the British Empire blush. Right? The Egyptians had a view of anybody who did manual labor, that they were essentially subhuman. There, is a, there are these, all these documents of how they talk about people with clay on their hands, the people who actually go and make pots. You know, we're, we're from the era of, like, well, I'm from the era of people, like, trying to get back to whatever. Let me do it the way my grandpa did it, right? They were not. <laughs> you didn't do work if you didn't have to do work, right? You wanted soft hands. And so the fact that Moses ends up in the same place as the slaves, even looking at what is going on is remarkable. Because somehow that prince of Egypt never forgot who nursed him. Never quite lost the songs that I imagine his mom sang to him. And as he walks out into Goshen, he sees an empire that rules not by grace but by violence. He sees a pharaoh who can only keep control of all of this by forcefully enslaving foreigners and by making sure that they stay there with another subclass of people who are engaged in slave driving. And I don't know exactly how personalities develop or calls or vocations or all those kinds of things, but it seems like every time we see Moses, the thing that he's doing is saving somebody. Every time Moses walks into a situation, he has this sense of somebody's being wronged and I need to deliver them. And so here he goes into Goshen. It's the first glimpse we get of this. There's a slave being beaten by the slave driver and he needs to enter in and to deliver the slave. All right? But his first attempt to do this, his first attempt to deliver, is through violence. His first attempt to save the Israelites is not through the power of God. It's through the means of Egypt. His first attempt to free the slaves is with the same thing that Egypt uses to enslave the slaves. You see that, why that becomes a little bit of a problem? He kills the slave driver and buries him in the sand. Now, the funny thing is, he is a prince of Egypt. This is not a problem legally. 
okay? If you are Pharaoh's son, adopted or otherwise, guess what? You get to kill people. It's kind of one of the perks. Um, it's probably on like page two or three, but you know, it's there. And, and you get to kind of do this stuff and get off. Nobody's coming after you. You're not getting dragged into court for this kind of thing. So why is it a problem for Moses? The problem for Moses is not that he killed the slave driver. The problem for Moses is that he sided with the slave. That he took the side of the one who was lower. The problem for Moses is that he doesn't take the side of the tyrant. And this little seed of Moses' Israelite identity sprouts and in the desert sand of Egypt becomes a little blossom. Where before it was whispered and everybody kind of knew that he was an Israelite and I'm sure he got ribbed by his brothers and fellow people in the court. But now all of a sudden he's starting to act like an Israelite. He knew that he was, in fact, an Israelite, but he still had too much of the Egyptian prince in him. So he uses the Egyptian way to accomplish an Israelite goal. When I got back from uh, high school camp, I was in town for, I don't know, what was it, 16 hours or something, and then <laughs> turned around and went back. Um, and I got this phone call from an old friend from years ago. And, okay, so I listened to the message, and, and it was a phone call sort of... Uh, celebrating that the Supreme Court had struck down Roe, um, and he was very excited about this, as he probably should have been. Uh, and yes, or this week, another friend asked me my thoughts, um, and uh, I honestly, I don't know how much time I really had to process it, because again, I was sort of gone and, and doing other things, um, but I kind of shrugged um, when, when the friend asked me, um, and to be clear, I, I'm personally glad that the Supreme Court made the decision that they did. I think it's ultimately a good move. Um, but here's the thing. It really just puts another responsibility in the laps of Christians. right? Because Christians as a sort of political block have been behind this move that got us here. Again, that's probably a good thing. But once we accomplish something, guess what? You've got a responsibility. And so my shrug was not whether or not it was good that things be struck down. My shrug was are Christians going to step up now and witness to life the way that we've said we do? So now that abortion gets kicked back down to the states, will Christians be the sign of a culture of life? Not just laws of life, but a culture of life. I hope so. Or, and this is my fear. My fear is that it might demonstrate that Christians are willing to use the ways of Egypt, to use the Supreme Court and the Senate and the House of Representatives to accomplish our goals when we are not willing to be transformed by the love of God in our own lives as we interact with neighbors and friends. My fear is that we become like Moses in the first part of the book. Or he wants to save the Israelites, but he wants to do it the Egyptian way. 
I don't know. Because just as Israel didn't need this kind of pseudo-Israelite, pseudo-Egyptian to do their liberating for them through violence, the people of our world do not need another political movement to tell them what's best from on high. People who need to encounter Jesus need to meet them in the nitty-gritty of their lives. That there, where there is need and sorrow and loss and fear and uncertainty and all the things that make us not want to get married and not have babies, all of that stuff, they need to meet a Lord who is incarnate and in the flesh. A Lord who didn't just say, I know that things are hard, but a Lord who entered in and got down with that woman in the dirt and drew and said, if anybody is without sin, cast the first stone. I feel this way, by the way, about all politics, good or bad, that it sets the stage for witness, but it doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself. Right? It sort of sets the table, but then we get to move forward and say, fine. You've now cleared the way. Now we get to actually speak the word, the content, the truth. So, as we look at that, this sort of God-oriented deliverance on Moses' side, we know it's always difficult. It's always difficult to resist tyranny in a good and holy and righteous way. Because it requires us pushing pause on our own desires. It requires us waiting for God to be the one who does it instead of us doing it and saying, well, I guess that maybe was God. Even John the Baptist, you notice in the Gospel reading, even John the Baptist struggles. He says, sends messengers to Jesus. Are you really the one? Why? Because John the Baptist knew as much as anybody that the Messiah was supposed to come and throw off the Romans. John the Baptist knew as much as anybody the Messiah was supposed to come and fix their political situation. And here is Jesus, and he's saying, look, what are you doing? I came announcing you, and now I'm kind of doubting. And Jesus' response, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's the offense? He's doing all this good stuff. What's the offense? The offense is he's not doing it Egypt's way. The offense is that Jesus' way is a way that depends on patience. It's a way that depends on waiting. It's a way that actually recognizes that God's not here to save us from suffering, but most of the time, God is actually saving us through suffering if we will take that suffering and submit it to the Lord. And this is really hard for us to hear because we've not heard this kind of thing over time in the American church, but it's what we need to hear. And so what kind of deliverance are you looking for? Is it the false deliverance that Moses begins with? Or is it the deliverance of faith? A deliverance that only God can accomplish. A deliverance that takes that fine baby boy and puts him in an ark and entrusts him to God in the Nile. I think Moses learned. 
I think he learned. Because as soon as he ends up running from Egypt because of that murder, he heads off to this place that ultimately is, is Midian. It's this, this wandering group of shepherds out in the desert. And his story starts to look a lot like the Apostle Paul's. Where here he is, he's lost everything. And he can say, like Paul in Philippians, all I once called gain, I have counted loss. He heads out into the desert, and like Christ in the desert, he rejects the temptations of imperial power. He leaves the court. He rejects the crowd-pleasing. He goes into obscurity and works as a shepherd. He rejects even wonder-working for its own sake come in chapter 3. But notice the first thing that he does when he goes off to the desert. He sits down by a well, and these seven daughters come along. And, and how does he help the daughters? Remember, he's a deliverer. Everywhere he goes, he's delivering somebody. And so he goes to the well. The seven daughters come. They're persecuted and oppressed by these other shepherds who would basically wait for the women to draw the water and then drive the women away. So the men don't have to do the menial work, right? They let them pull all the water out of the well, and then they drive them and their flocks away, water their own flocks, and then the women have to come back and do it all over again, right? So what does Moses do? Well, he uses all that good military training from Egypt, and he drives the shepherds away. But how many of those shepherds does he kill? None. He how to deliver without doing it Egypt's way. Right? And it's just a little instance, but he's starting to make some progress here. And so, drives away the shepherds without killing the, uh, drives away the shepherds without killing them. And then it says, and we might have missed this detail. It says, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. You know what Moses did there in that desert along that well in Midian? He did some women's work, and he went from being the prince in the court who ruled over the slaves to being the shepherd in a foreign land who served. He went from being the one who would look down on somebody who had clay on their face and on their hands from all their menial labor to being the one who got down in the dirt. And then, it just goes further. Moses loses and loses and loses. He gets all the way down. He marries Zipporah. Moses learns to live at peace as a sojourner. His own first son comes along, and he names him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. As we're walking through Exodus, we're asking this question of rescue and promise. What does God rescue us from? What does he, what promise does he bring us into? Well, Moses is rescued from the need to have his life turn out a certain way as a prince. He's rescued from the way of Egypt, from having to do things Egypt's way, from having to save through violence. And what promise is he brought into? He's given the promise of family and a future, even in uncertain times. In the desert, Moses' life is abandoned to the Lord. 
and he has no future that does not come from God. I wonder, when you think about your own story, when you think about your own life, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself still trying to do things Egypt's way? It's the way that produces anxiety. It's the way that produces fear. It's a way that says I have to hoard to myself and I can't ultimately live with an open hand because something bad might happen in the future. It's the way that uses and trusts in violence to accomplish our safety rather than recognizing that God is the one who loves us and that there's no real safety outside of his presence. But the point of this chapter, ultimately, comes in the last verses. Moses' story is meant to unfold something for us because it all leads up to verses 23 and 24. God is preparing a deliverer for his people, not because God wants to do something in Moses' life. That's what's interesting. He's preparing a deliverer for Israel because he loves Israel and he wants Israel to witness to him. And so what do we see in verses 23 and 24? God hears four things. God hears the cry of the oppressed. God remembers his covenant promise. God sees his people. And then he simply says, and God knows. We could go through those first, God hears, God sees, God remembers. But I think I'm most interested in that phrase, and God knows. If you know the Bible very well, you know that this is the word that shows up right before a couple has a baby, right? And Adam knew his wife. And she brought forth Abel and Cain. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase, it's a word that speaks to the intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's this promise that we will discover next week is about God knowing his people. Because what is it that this God who knows Israel does? He shows up to them face to face. He shows up to Moses, and guess what? He tells him his name. He tells him who he is. He teaches Moses how to speak to him. Do you know what an unbelievable moment this is? For God to not only want to save Israel for his own glory, but to say, I actually want to know you. And I know that you don't know how to know me, so I'm going to tell you how to know me. Here's my name. Here's how you worship me. Here's how you come to me. Because we are meant to be in this sort of face-to-face. -face. Remember, Adam face-to-face -face with Eve, both of them living face-to-face -face with God, who walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day. We are built for face-to-face -face relationship with the creator of the universe. And anything else doesn't satisfy because that's not what we're made for. And yet how often do we just shut that hunger down and say, oh, that's a desire that can't really be fulfilled? That's not realistic. I want to suggest that the point of Exodus 
is about God forming a people that he can be face to face with. It's about God creating a nation that he can know the way that a husband knows a wife. And he starts with Israel, not because Israel is so special, but because he wants to begin with Israel so that he could ultimately know all people and all creation. It's not an accident that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Christ will know his church. He'll come for his church the way a husband comes for a bride. You see, some of us dare to marry, and some of us dare to bear children, and some of us dare to raise families in uncertain times. And some of us are called to be faithful and chaste in our singleness, whether we began single or not. But we're called to live with that kind of chaste, that kind of chastity as a sign of the kingdom. Knowing that even if I'm unattached maritally, I still am a sign of Christ loving me so intimately that he wants to see me, to know me, to walk with me. Whether we're, whatever stage of life we're in, we are consecrated through our whole lives, even in our intimacy, even in our loneliness, to cry out to God that we might be heard, remembered, seen, and known. And so how will you testify of God's loving knowledge today? What daring acts of resistance are you called to this morning? How might you embody the kingdom of God in your home, in your family, on your neighborhood? How might you inhabit the truth that like Moses, that like John the Baptist, that like Paul, that the least in the kingdom of God is truly the greatest? And then when we encounter somebody in the obscurity, somebody in the quiet, somebody in a place like Midian, we might just be encountering somebody that God is raising up to be the deliverer for his people. I wonder what would happen if Christ's church lived with the expectation that everybody we come across has that greater purpose. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, in your goodness and your love for us, Lord, we know that there's nobody who's too obscure. There's nobody in a place who is, is too far from you that you don't hear or see or remember or know. Lord, that whether we find ourselves abandoned to Egypt or fully in the story of Israel, Lord God, that you know who we are and you want to know us more deeply. So we pray, Father God, that we would live lives of response. That in this church, that among the people in this room, we would encounter the very kingdom of God, knowing and trusting that you are doing your work in each one of us anyone who would respond. Amen.